Well, good morning. As the children and the workers are heading out of the auditorium, I invite you to turn to the Gospel of Luke. And our reading this morning will be from Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14. It's on page 857 in the Black Pew Bible, if that's what you're using. Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14. And to state the obvious, we're obviously not in Isaiah, so we're taking a break from our Isaiah series for the Christmas season. If you would, stand with me for the reading of Scripture. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swatting cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. This is God's word. Thanks, thanks God. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you, and we come to you because we are needy. We are needy of your help. Uh, we are needy to pray to you. We are needy to trust in you. We are needy. Uh, of you in our problems and our trials and in all the difficulties of life, not to mention our own sinfulness and our own waywardness, we, we desperately need you. So God, I just pray that as we look to your word and as we look to this particular hymn of Hark the Herald Angels Sing this morning, that you would be our helper, that you would be our teacher, and ultimately that you would be our redeemer and our God. Would you help us in these few moments that we have together? Will you help me as the preacher to proclaim things clearly? And will you help us all to receive what you would have for us this morning from your holy word? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to do things a little bit differently this morning. We're going to take a unique tact, because normally what we do is we work through books of the Bible, start in chapter 1 and work our way chronologically or sequentially all the way through till the final chapter of that book. And if we're not doing that, then we usually take a single text and we exposit that text. But today what we're going to do, and for, the next, for this week and the following week, 
We're going to break from that pattern. We're going to break from our series in Isaiah. And James and I are going to walk through some well-known and well-loved Christmas hymns. Next week, James is going to take us through O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And today, this morning, I am going to consider Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Let me begin with a brief history of this hymn. I'm not sure if you knew this, but songs or hymns have a history of their own. The hymn was originally penned by Charles Wesley in 1739. Charles Wesley was the brother of the well-known John Wesley, and together they were the co-founders of the Methodist movement along with their friend George Whitfield. Charles Wesley was a hymn writer. He was a poet. He was a songwriter. He wrote some 6,000 hymns in his lifetime, and he would be riding on a horse, and I think just ideas would pop into his head, and, and I'm assuming he would kind of stop the horse and then run into a house and ask for a pen and paper so that he could write down his thoughts, and he could write down whatever came as an inspiration into his mind. And can it be? Come, thou long-expected Jesus. Christ the Lord is risen today, and oh, for a thousand tongues to sing are just some of the hymns out of the 6,000 that he penned. And he also wrote, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. In 1739, probably roughly a year after his conversion, the hymn was then altered by George Whitfield in 1753. Whitfield took out a few stanzas. He changed a few lines. Most notably, he changed the opening lines from, Hark how all the welkin, or how all the heavens rings, Glory to the King of Kings, and Whitfield changed it to what we know the hymn as, Hark the Herald, Angels Sing, Glory to the Newborn King. There's a pastor by the name of Madden, who also had a hand in shaping the hymn, and then finally John Wesley published the hymn in the 1787 Methodist hymnal. And then also for the tune that we sing, it's not original, and this is an interesting piece of the history as well. The tune comes from Felix Mendelssohn, who actually wrote a song to celebrate and to commemorate um, Johann Gutenberg and the invention of the printing press. And so that's an interesting piece of history as well. This secular tune was taken and combined with this religious song, and that's how we know and sing it today. It is arguably one of the better-known Christmas hymns in our day, at least in the Western world, even after 300 years have passed. This tune can be heard in shopping malls, It can be heard in A Charlie Brown Christmas. It is a well-known and a well-loved Christmas song. What I want to do this morning is I want to just walk through the song stanza by stanza. There's three stanzas that we're going to consider, and I'll draw our attention to just a few texts as it relates to each of the stanzas, because I think what Wesley and Whitfield after him, what they're doing is they're actually drawing upon the scriptures to tell the story of Christmas. Three stanzas, three points. That's how I want to divide up our sermon this morning. Stanza number one, if you're taking notes, the announcement of his birth. The announcement of his birth. And, you know, I was thinking, like, it would be cool if we could maybe, like, do, like, a musical out of this. Like, you know, maybe tell a bit of the story and then sing a bit of the song and then keep explaining the, song, the, keep explaining the story and then sing a bit of a song. But in order to protect my own dignity and your ears, I'm just going to read stanza number one. It says, Hark, 
the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies, with angelic hosts proclaim Christ is born in Bethlehem. I think it's fair to say that what we have here in stanza number one is Luke 2 paraphrased in song form. Luke 2 is the passage that we read at the outset, and I think what we have here is a paraphrase of what's going on in Luke chapter 2 in song form. Now, what was happening in Luke 2? You have to remember and you have to understand that the Christmas story is not some sort of comfortable, domesticated, sort of feel-good, everything-goes-smoothly-and-well story. That's how we often think of it. Because we read about it in our pajamas by a fire with hot chocolate in our hands. But I was actually far from what actually happened in the original context. In the original context, the Caesar, Augustus, has sent out a decree to his empire. And he called for a census. And the likely reason he was calling for this census is so that he could gain military service out of his citizens and also draw taxes out of them. So there's a real political, financial motivation behind this census. And as a result of that, Joseph, along with his pregnant, sort of what we might call fiancé, Mary, traveled to the city of his ancestors, obviously the city of Bethlehem, to be registered in the census. So they're displaced out of wherever they were living down to this ancestral city of Bethlehem because the rulers of the land are trying to uh, make political and financial moves. That, that was kind of a setting of, of the birth of the Lord Jesus. And it's while they're in this city of Bethlehem that Mary gives birth to the baby Jesus. It's probable that not many knew about his birth And it was not a publicized affair, and no announcement was made across the empire. And it is very unlikely that Augustus, who inadvertently had a hand in the fulfillment of prophecy, knew anything about the birth of the king of kings. But God does want to announce this birth to the world, but not through Caesar Augustus, but to some lowly and insignificant shepherds who represent all the peoples of the earth. And I, just, I think this is important to know. What was happening? The big thing that would have been on the news and on the television and in the newspapers would have been this census that Caesar Augustus had called for. But according to God, the thing that was significant that was happening in those moments was not the census. It was not the, the, the movements and the, the, um, the designs of the Caesar, but it was the birth of his son. And he wanted to announce this not through the Roman ruler, but he wanted to announce this uh, to and through some of these lowly shepherds. And that was our passage. The angels appear in brilliant and bright light to the shepherds. The shepherds are not surprisingly shocked. They're taken aback. They're fearful. And so this is what the angel says to them. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And as the angel continues to, and as the angel continues to speak to the shepherds, he is joined by an angelic chorus. 
And they, this angelic chorus proclaims glory to God in the highest and on peace, or on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now, let's just leave the Christmas story for a moment and come into our own context. And if you think with me for a moment about words that might describe our culture and our world, what comes to mind? If you were to describe your own emotional state or your current experience, what words come to mind? And really, we could spend an entire hour just discussing the state of the world and the state of our culture and the ways that this makes us and the people around us feel. But let me just give a few snippets of what that conversation might look like. It's, when we look at the culture, we might say that it is divided. Similarly, we might say that there is tension with the way our culture is quick to cancel people and hastily write off others. We might say that this world is harsh or unforgiving. We look at the world and we are saddened to see the uptick in things like made, words like hopeless and cruel come to mind. And then, and then we think of our own lives and our own experience, either related to these things in the broader culture or not, and many words come to mind. Many words uh, like arise to the surface. Words like anxious, fearful, painful, hopeless, depressed, despondent, broken. Shame, guilt, and my soul is at unrest. But when we look at our song, words of a whole nother world are heard. Words of a whole different experience emerge. Words like peace. Mercy, reconciliation, joy, and triumph. And so the simple question I have for you, and I don't mean to be simplistic in this, but which one is your experience, Christian? Which one better describes you, brother and sister, in the Lord? Because God has declared in his holy word that the coming of Christ, that the birth of the Lord Jesus is good news of great joy for righteous men. It's good news of great joy for people who have it together. It's good news of great joy for people whose circumstances are what I want it to be. It's good news of great joy for people who are of middle and upper class in terms of economic status, is good news of great joy for people who have uh, put together marriages and put together families. No, the birth of the Lord Jesus is good news of great joy for all people. I don't mean to be simplistic. I understand that many of you have burdens that you carry in your hearts. I understand that many of you have difficult trials that you might even be enduring as we speak. I understand that many of you uh, on Sundays, you might look put together, but then you go back home and, and really it's probably the experience of most of us that it, our lives are much more broken than we like to admit and give off. I understand that we have issues and we have problems and there's broken heartedness in each one of our hearts, but perhaps part of the reason that we are often 
in the slumps. And part of the reason that we find ourselves discouraged and anxious is because of the things that we are meditating upon. And because we are therefore singing a different song, we are not singing the song of the angels. Because, listen friend, what we think about, what we meditate upon, what we talk about, has a profound effect on our joy and on our peace. It's not enough this December, or any other time of the year, in fact, to merely mentally check off the box of Jesus is the reason for the season, and then get on with the real life, whatever that is. No, the intention of Luke, which is captured by Wesley, which is carried forward by Whitfield, is that our ears would hear of this angelic course and that our minds would be drawn to the birth of our Savior, and that our hearts would overflow with joy and peace because of the great grace that God has shown to us, we who are the sinful nations. I think, I think, I hope, that the illustration of a corn maze is helpful here. If you've been to a corn maze, you know how it works. And you know how disorienting the experience can be. You go into the entrance, and you're supposed to weave through this entire you know, acre or two or whatever it is of this corn maze, and you're supposed to come out like 10 meters over there, which is the exit. You enter the maze, you're surrounded by stalks that are you know, several feet taller than you, and somehow you're supposed to come out of the exit. And you know, it's disorienting, and you're often lost, and it takes you a long time to get through the maze. And, but at some corn mazes, in the middle of the field, there will be a tall bridge. And if you get to that bridge and go up on top, then you're able to see the whole maze, which can help you to navigate your way to the finish. And living in this world can feel a bit like a corn maze, disorienting and being lost. And climbing on that bridge and seeing the big picture and the way to the finish is a bit like hearing the angelic chorus. That with everything going on in the world and in our lives, that with all the turmoil and the tension, with all the decay of society, with all the brokenness and pain, with the shifting plates of our culture, and in Luke's time, with all the moving pawns of the Roman Empire so that Augustus could draw taxes from his citizens and have men for his army, the angels of heaven who were in the presence of God were focused on the birth of this newborn king. Friends, as it says in another well-known Christmas hymn, it came upon a midnight clear, hear the angels sing. Stanza number two, the theology of his birth. Stanza number one is the announcement of his birth. Stanza number two is the theology of his birth. And stanza number one, the, the, the tone is set. We're called to rejoice and we're called to sing as believers as, and as Christians. And really, it's a call to all the earth. And in stanza number two, Wesley dives deep into the theology of the birth of Jesus or into the theology of the incarnation. But before we go to the manger in Bethlehem or even to the womb of Mary, we need to go to the heights of heaven. I know that you don't have it open in front of you, but the hymn, that's where the hymn goes. Wesley says that Jesus is adored in the highest heavens, in the upper echelons of heaven. 
In that place, the thing that is most valued, the, the, the being that is most treasured, and the person that is most adored is the Son of God, the second person of the Godhead. The one that we call the Lord Jesus Christ, he is the talk of heaven. He is all the rage of heaven, and eternally so. And this one who is the most cherished being in all the universe this one who is the everlasting Lord, this one who is of the same nature as the Father, this one who is God of God, light from light, true God from true God, as the Nicene Creed says, becomes, became incarnate. The Son of God became a man. More precisely, the the second person of the Godhead added to himself a human nature, and this took place in the womb of Mary some two millennia ago by the Holy Spirit. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. We call him Jesus. I think that's his human name. But this one that we call Jesus who has existed from eternity past, co-equal, co-substantial, and of the same essence as the Father, that this one added to himself for our sake a human nature in order to become our Redeemer. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. Many chapters and many books have been written on Christology or on the doctrine of the Incarnation in particular, but Wesley really does a marvelous job of capturing this theology in a mere eight lines. He says this, Christ, by highest heaven adored, Christ, the everlasting Lord, late in time, behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. Why don't you turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 1. It's on page 886 in the Pew Bible, I believe. John 1. We'll just allow John to kind of speak into this a little bit so that we're going to the Scriptures. But let me sort of read it and provide commentary as we go along. But it says, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Listen to the profundity of what John is saying. He says that when when the world was being created, the Lord Jesus was already there. This word is God in the sense that he shares the same divine essence as the Father. But this word is distinct from the Father in the sense that um, it says the word was with God. And so that's why we believe that there's a distinction between the person of the Father and the person of the Son. And it is through this word that all things have come into existence for all things were made through him. And then if you jump down to John 1.14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as, the, of, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus added to Himself a human nature, thereby becoming one of us. And He did this in order to tabernacle or dwell among us. 
He was pleased as as man with men to dwell, as the hymn says. And if you would, just sorry I have to do so much turning, just turn with me to one other passage. Go to Matthew 1. If you go to Matthew 1, which is page, page 807 in the Pew Bible. We'll go to Matthew 1. We'll look at verses 22 through 23. And what's happening here is that Joseph has just found out that his Fiance, we'll just use that word just because it's, it's, it's a short form that we understand. His fiance is pregnant, but he hasn't had any relations with her, and so he resolves to divorce her quietly. So an angel appears to Joseph in order to explain the matter, and this is what we pick up in verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you should call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. If you're like most people, I'm sure that you have asked at points in your life, why does God seem so absent in my life? Where is God in my life which is filled with all these problems? Where is God to help me in my trials? Where is God when I cry out to him in my prayers? Where is God when I need him most? Where is God in the midst of this mess? Luke, Matthew, Wesley, and Whitfield tell us that he is in the manger in Bethlehem. Helpless as any other newborn with respect to his humanity, dependent upon his parents like every other child, the Son of God has humbled himself in the most magnificent of ways, all to bring the presence of God to us. All to move near to us in our mess and in our brokenness and in our darkness by being born in the manger in Bethlehem. And, and if reflecting upon this, I actually think that the reality of the incarnation is one of the strongest arguments or evidences for God's care for humanity and for the world. And I know that doesn't solve all of your problems. I, I know that this doesn't remove all of your trials. But as you meditate upon the reality of the incarnation and as you marvel at the fact that the Son of God became man for you and for me, And as we are led to sing praises to this great king who humbled himself for us, I think it does provide us with perspective. I think it allows us to have joy in the midst of difficulty and it enables us to have hope in a hopeless world. Even with the difficulties and the pains of life. Jesus left the glories of heaven, and then he willingly came into this world in the womb of the Virgin Mary, conceived 
by the Holy Spirit, and he lived a perfect life in our place in order to secure our redemption for us. Jesus loves you, and he loves humanity, and he loves sinners immensely. Third, so we've considered the announcement of his birth. Second, we've taken a look at the theology of his birth. And then third, I want to look at the implications of his birth. There's a bit of a kind of historical figures weaved into this sermon. Let, let me talk to you about one other man, a man by the name of John Bunyan. Bunyan was a pastor in the 17th century. He was a tinker, which means just that his craft was, uh, he just made and fixed things out of metal, and he would have learned that from his father. He is known, though, as a pastor and a preacher and an author, and, but he was imprisoned by the British monarchy for preaching publicly without a license from the King of England. Bunyan and some 2,000 uh, ministers with him refused to worship according to the Book of Common Prayer and so were ejected out of their churches and they were arrested and imprisoned. I don't know how many of those 2,000 were actually arrested, but they were ejected out of the Church of England. Bunyan was in prison and he had a long imprisonment, a near 12 years in prison for preaching without a license from the king of England. And it's during that time that he wrote his famous work, The Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, and it was said of Bunyan that his blood was not type A, not type B or type O or whatever it is, but Bibline. I forget who it was who said this of him. It might have been Spurgeon, but he said, prick him anywhere and you will find that his blood is Bibline. The very essence of the Bible flows from him, from Bunyan. And what was said of Bunyan, I think, could be said of Charles Wesley as well. I hope that you've picked up on this because behind virtually every line of this hymn are the scriptures. If not one verse, multiple verses, and sometimes there's such reference to the scriptures we don't know exactly which one Wesley had in mind as he penned that particular line. But the Bible oozes from every line. Sound doctrine is tightly packed in each stanza. Hark the herald angels sing if it had blood is Bibline. Because I'm not sure what kind of verses come to your mind when you think of Christmas. I'm assuming that Malachi 4.2 is not one of them. But it was for Wesley. And, and, and he, he makes a reference to Malachi 4.2. And in that context, the prophet is talking about the coming day of the Lord. And it talks about how, and this is related to our series and studies in Isaiah, but how when the Lord comes, he is going to judge the evildoer and the arrogant. But he, he offers a promise to those who fear God. He offers a promise to those who receive his message. He offers a promise to those who would believe and trust in the message of Yahweh. And for those who accept his message, then Malachi says, But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. What this means then, and we, we tend to understand Malachi 4.2 in passages like this as, as a reference to his second coming, and I think that's good and right, and maybe that's the reason why you don't think of Malachi 4.2 when it comes to Christmas. But either way, Wesley applies it to his first coming. I think it's helpful. What Wesley is saying is this, 
that you, my friend, live in a dark and wicked world. You, my friend, are sick in your soul along with the rest of humanity. And do you want to know what the Lord Jesus brings? You're in darkness. You're wicked. And your soul is sick. And when this heaven-born prince of peace comes, when this son of righteousness comes, he comes with healing in his wings. And he comes with light and life to all he brings. Jesus brings to us what we need at the deepest level of our soul. Jesus comes and addresses the deepest problems of humanity of which we are a part. Jesus comes as the son of righteousness with healing in his wings. And that's what Wesley wants us to focus on in this song. And then Wesley ends this stanza in staccato fashion. Born, that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. Most of you are part of an evangelical church, and so I, th I think that you understand that Jesus came in order to deal with our sins, in order to bring us spiritual salvation. But there are lots of ideas about Jesus out there. And perhaps some of you have various ideas about the Lord Jesus. For what purpose did the Lord Jesus come? Or for what purpose did Jesus of Nazareth come into this world? Because you'll get a whole host of answers to that. Jesus epitomizes for us the moral life. He, he, was the he was the best example of what it looks like to love others and live in harmony with those around him. He was a great teacher of ethics. He, he, was, a, he was a great philosopher, and he, held, and, 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 he, and he held the attention of the people of his day because he was just a remarkable teacher of religion. He showed us the way of love and peace. He showed us the way of charity and unity. And I don't necessarily disagree with those things. I don't necessarily disagree that Jesus is the best teacher, that he is the best philosopher, that he is the best human being who has ever existed, and he gives us a model and an example of how to live our lives as Christians. I don't disagree with any of that, but that's not the main reason why Jesus came. And for Wesley and for Whitfield, what they want us to understand is that the birth of Jesus was not so much that he could live a good example for us. The, the birth of Jesus was not so much so that he could be a good teacher for all the world, irrespective of what they do with the gospel. No, what Whitfield and what Wesley want us to focus upon in terms of the implications of the birth of the Lord Jesus is that it secures for us regeneration and resurrection, which, which in its totality encompasses what the Bible calls eternal life. The newborn king says to us in John 11, Jesus said to Martha, remember the context here is that Lazarus has died and Jesus delayed in coming to Mary and Martha and Martha is distraught and she's saying, Jesus, if you had only come earlier then you could have spared my brother's life and this is what the Lord Jesus says to her. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And then in John 3, in, in a, there's the religious leader, Nicodemus, coming to him in the night, and he has questions about Jesus. He has questions about religion. He has questions about the ways of God. And Jesus, without holding anything back, this is what he says to him, to Nicodemus. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Have you been born again? So I hope that this is helpful. If we come to understand the magnificence and the awesomeness of the birth of Jesus and its implications for humanity, what can we do but hail him, the heaven-born Prince of Peace? What can we do but hail him, the Son of Righteousness, who is risen with healing in his wings? That we should enthusiastically approve of him, that we should joyfully and loudly welcome him into our hearts and into this gathering. If any place in Georgetown, if any place in the greater Toronto area, if any place in the province of Ontario, if any place in the nation of Canada, that the Lord Jesus is welcomed and celebrated as the Prince of Peace and the Son of Righteousness, it should be here in this place. And churches which believe also in the Bible and in the gospel. I want to conclude our time by reading an expert, an excerpt from one of the hymn's contributors, George Whitfield. He preached this sermon in anticipation of Christmas, and he says, a, he says a bunch of things in it, but this is from his introduction. Let me just read it to you. When we consider the condescension and love of the Lord Jesus Christ in submitting to be born of a virgin, and especially as he knew how he was going to be treated in this world, that he was to be despised, scoffed at, and at last to die a painful, shameful, and disgraceful death, that he should be treated as though he was the refuse of all mankind, treated not like the Son of Man, and therefore certainly not like the Son of God, the consideration of these things should make us admire the love of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was so willing to offer himself as a ransom for the sins of the people that when the fullness of time was come, Christ came made of a woman, made under the law. He came not in glory or in splendor. No, he was born in a stable and laid in a manger. Oxen were his companions. Oh, amazing condescension of the Lord Jesus Christ to stoop to such low and poor things for our sake. What love is this? What great and wonderful love was here that the Son of God should come into our world in so lowly a condition to deliver us from the sin and misery in which we were involved by our fall in our first parents. Well, let's sing to him. Let me close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time that we've had in your word, considering this great hymn. God, I know in my own heart that I can be so very easily distracted by the things of this world away from the things of God. And so I just pray for all of us collectively that today, this week, this month, that you would help us in our own way and 
unique to our circumstances, would you help us to focus and to have great joy in and to sing about and remind one another about the birth and the coming of the Lord Jesus that is our only hope in this hopeless world. Help us to fix our eyes on him, our Savior, our Redeemer, and our God. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.